If you have a Bible with you, I hope you do, get to 1 Thessalonians. Last Sunday, we began a 10-week series through this book of the Bible. We are in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Paul is writing this letter to encourage this young church in the faith, in, their, in, in the faith and in the mission that they've been called to. Paul was a, the Apostle Paul was part of the mission team that planted this new church and yet was only able to remain with them for a few weeks before getting forced out of town by a riot. Timothy, Paul's faithful partner in ministry, then is sent back to this church to check on how this church is doing. And so he brings this report back to Paul, and now Paul, both through his remembrance of being with them for a few weeks, as well as Timothy's report, writes this letter back to encourage the Thessalonian church. The Apostle Paul was a leader. And in this section of the letter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, he's talking about his leadership. He's talking about Timothy and Silas's leadership. And so I pray that this text would encourage us as leaders today. Because we're all leaders in some form or fashion. Maybe it's here in the life of the church. Maybe it's at home, in the marketplace, in the community, in the school. For my own pastoral heart, this passage is a great encouragement to my leadership. I pray for you elders, it is a great encouragement and spurring on to your heart this morning. For you who are on staff, I pray it's a great encouragement for community group leaders, sun chasers, hype, a variety of leaders, financing, business team, or uh, uh, missions team, building team, that we would be spurred on in our leadership and that our leadership would be God-glorifying in the months to come. The Apostle Paul was a leader. And at the same time, he was a follower. See, here's the question that, that every Christ-following leader needs to wrestle down, not just once, but multiple times through their season of leadership. Here's the question. Whose glory are you going to live for? Whose glory will you lead others toward? Yes, you're a leader, but will you be a follower? See, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'll lead, but understand that at the same time, I'm following and understand who I'm following. Our world, and this has been the case for centuries, since Genesis 3. This is not a 2020 thing. This is since a Genesis 3 reality, that our world is in desperate need of leaders who have been transformed by the gospel, who are seeking to follow Jesus, glorify God, leaders who will say, like Paul, Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. We need leaders like this in the church and in business, in government, in schools, in the community, in the family, in the household. Leaders who will continually reject the temptation to live for the glory of self and instead seek to live and lead for God's glory alone. And today in this passage, we'll be encouraged in that pursuit. And I need this and you need this. You students need this. Imagine a next generation that would really wrestle down and to be able to grasp what it means to live for God's glory and lead with God's glory in mind. How powerful a movement would occur where the gospel would be going out, transforming hearts and souls. And that, my friends, is what leads to revival. That is what we put our hope in. Jesus, the chief shepherd, Jesus and his good news. That is is what we pray would bring revival across our nation because we need something supernatural, something eternal to transform earthly. We don't look to earthly solutions to solve earthly problems. We look to something eternal 
the gospel to bring about earthly transformation and revival. So we've got 12 verses to look at, and we'll look at them through this framework, this contrast of leaders who live for themselves versus leaders who live for the Lord and His glory. Leaders who want the, the world to revolve around themselves and their own little kingdoms, or leaders who re- understand their citizenship as a part of His kingdom and live for His purposes. We'll see that contrast throughout this section. And Paul also gives us two pictures, really practical, personal pictures of what leadership should look like. A picture of a mother and a picture of a father. Again, remind us that remind us of his purposes. So again, the context. Paul has planted the church. He's writing back to them months later to encourage them. And here, in a lot of ways, he's reminding them of his character and the conduct of, of not only himself, but the mission team that he was with. He's saying, remember whose glory we lived for. Remember whose name we made much of. And it wasn't Paul and Timothy and Silas. So why include this part in the letter? Well, a couple reasons. Some say it was to refute the wrongful slander about Paul that was occurring. He'd been forced out of town very quickly, had only been with them a few weeks, and he had not been able to return to them. And so he's writing to communicate his heart as a leader and remind them that as a leader, he's seeking to lead in a way to make much of Jesus. So no matter what the gossip or slander or accusations are saying about Paul, Paul's reminding them of his way of life. Another probable reason is to include this section is to strengthen the Thessalonians in the faith and in their desire to continue in the faith, to pursue an overflowing faithfulness. Paul is saying, let me remind you, church, how the gospel is not just changing you, but it's changing me. We'll hear this multiple times. Paul say things like, you yourselves know, or as you know, or for you remember, or for you are witnesses. When someone's way of life doesn't line up with what they're saying, it discredits what's coming out of their mouth, right? We get that. Hypocrisy among Christ followers is one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel message and the evangelizing of people. Where there's this disconnect between our talk and our walk. And what we say, we say, oh, Jesus is who satisfies. Jesus is who has saved me. But then in our way of life, we reveal that we've turned to created things all the time try to find our our rest or our satisfaction this disconnect when we ignore the disconnect and don't address it and walk in the light when we ignore it it is a great hindrance to the mission that we are on and paul's saying listen what you heard from me as we proclaim the gospel is also what you saw in me and the team that the gospel the seed of word was transforming our own hearts so let's read the passage And then we'll talk through it in the CSB translation. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. 
Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not be a burden, so we would not burden any of you. We preach God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers, as you know, like a father with his own children. Verse 12, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Verse 1 again, for you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. Our visit wasn't a failure. Our investment didn't return empty. It wasn't pointless. We came to town. We shared the gospel. We shared our lives. And the Lord did the work of building his supernatural church. Souls were saved. Hearts were transformed. Repentance took place. And the family of God is expanding into a new city. Verse 2, on the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. So what is Paul talking about here? What, what happened in Philippi? Well, to find out, you've got to go to Acts 16. So if you've got a Bible, get to Acts 16. Prior to coming to Thessalonica to plant this church, Paul and Silas were in the town of Philippi doing ministry in Acts 16, 16 through 40, tells that story. Paul and Silas minister to a young girl who was demon-possessed and a slave. She was a fortune teller and as a result made her owners a lot of money. She gets saved, set free from the demon possession, and obviously that upsets the owners because the fortune-telling business has suddenly gone under. Profits are down. The slave has been, been set, set free. Her eyes have been illuminated, and now she is walking in the light of God's grace. The owners stir up as a result, attack and persecution toward Paul and Silas. They're stripped of their clothing, beaten with rods, flogged, and unjustly thrown into the inner part of the jail. And just for kicks, no pun intended, their feet are secured in stocks. And I love the next verse. Verse 25. Because when you read the story... You don't imagine verse 25 coming next. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Stripped, beaten, flogged, chained up, leads to prayer and worship night. Beautiful. It should spur us on. Circumstances not affecting their joy. Circumstances actually exposing that their joy and rest is in the Lord. And so circumstances leading them, not away from prayer and worship, but toward prayer and worship. And the Lord causes a miracle to occur. Earthquake happens, jail doors open up. Picking up in verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He, he escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds right away. He and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house 
set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God and his entire household. The Lord's supernatural church is being built. The gospel is going out even in spite of great suffering and persecution, even in spite of outrageous treatment that they've experienced in Philippi. One thing that didn't change was Paul and Silas's mission that they were on. In fact, it only emboldened their mission. It strengthened them in the mission. The, the missionary, the travel plans weren't affected. They only remained. And so they go to Thessalonica and continue to show and tell of the gospel. The work doesn't return void, and yet they're still forced out because of persecution. Run out of town, and yet the Lord remains chief shepherd of his church. A quick book plug if you're a reader. Years ago as a staff, we read The Insanity of God, is what the book is called. You might have heard of it. I would commend it to you, encourage you to read it. It's a great book to remind us of the power of the gospel, despite earthly circumstances. A great encouragement to you, I believe it would be. Suffering has a way of exposing motives, exposing the heart, doesn't it? Suffering will show you where the cracks in the drywall are, the areas the Lord is seeking to do some restoration and strengthening work. And one, and for Paul, one motive that was exposed in suffering is that he was compelled by love as an ambassador for Christ despite difficulty. Because Paul writes there, they were emboldened by our God. If Paul was living for the glory of self, he never goes to Thessalonica. He goes, ah, enough hardship for me. I think I'm going to go back the other way. Instead, his travel plans remain because his life is not his own. He's living for a greater purpose, a, a greater kingdom than just this earth. He's living for something eternal. May the same be said of us here at Crosspoint. May the same be said of us, that we live for an eternal kingdom while here on this earth. Verse 3, for our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Leading through suffering exposed the purity of their motives as well as the purity of the message. They didn't come into town to deceive or hustle people. Verse 4, instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. They have received a commission from God for gospel ministry. The good news of, of Jesus has been entrusted to Paul, not to be hidden away or kept in a museum, but to be told and shared and passed down, passed on to entrusted others who will be faithful to teach others. He says, I've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. As a kid, I remember being entrusted with the John Deere riding mower. No offense to you people who like red, but it was a holy moment for me as a kid. I finally weighed enough to sit on that yellow seat and not have it shut off on me. I could even lean to a side and have it not shut off on me. I don't have that problem now, in case you're wondering. In doing so, in being entrusted with the mower, I wanted to please my dad. I wanted to mow like dad. I wanted to... Uh, take good care of the John Deere mower. And for the most part, I did. I did dump it in the pond one day, but that's another story for another message, another analogy. When you've been entrusted with something, you want to please the one who is 
who has entrusted it to you. You understand the responsibility that has been bestowed upon you. And Paul is seeking to please God. Now what he is not saying is that if you want to please God, that you automatically are not going to please people. I think unfortunately some people have, a, have created this formula in their mind of if they can stir up more and more people who are angry with them, that they are more, that they are more righteous toward the Lord more pleasing to the Lord. I don't think that is what Paul is talking about here. He is saying that the fundamental motivation of a leader is seeking to glorify God, to please Him, not live for the applause or praise of people. The Lord is the commanding officer. He is our loving Father. We are His sheep. We are His servants. We are His people. A couple weeks ago, we were at a family gathering and Heather threw out a question around the campfire to the group of, if you could go back and tell your, tell your 13-year-old self some piece of wisdom, what would it be? Well, I, I automatically come up with about 1,800 different things I'd like to go back and tell my 13-year-old self. But here's one. I would have told myself to fear God rather than fear man. To fear God rather than fear man. Meaning I'd be far more concerned about seeking to live in a way that worships and glorifies God than in a way that is continually trying to find my acceptance or identity in what people think of me. Because when you're chasing after your identity through the acceptance of people rather than the Lord, it leads to one place, biblical compromise. It leads to biblical compromise, a hypocritical way of life, where with, with this one group, you act according to that group. You go to another person or another group, and you act according to that group. And it just, you just get tossed around like a boat, getting beaten against the shore or by the waves. For Paul, his identity was in Christ. It was rooted in the good news of Jesus Christ. And when your life is anchored to the Lord, when it's rooted in Christ, you're freed up to live for yourself, to live for the Lord. Live for His earthly kingdom. Because in Christ, you're accepted and you're loved, you're at rest, you're secure, you're at peace, you're forgiven, you're redeemed. You're able to speak and, and, and live and lead from a place that is unmovable and unshakable, the cornerstone of Christ who is the fullness of grace and truth. And so when you speak in a way that glorifies God, it will lead to speech that reflects the fullness of His grace and truth. Jesus said that out of the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. And so when the Lord gets a hold of our hearts, out of our mouths should be continual evidence that He's ruling here. Continual evidence that we are speaking of of the fullness of His grace and His truth. Verse 5, he's beginning to talk about speech. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. We didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Flattering speech means the methods by which a person seeks to gain influence over another, but for your own selfish, selfish interest. I'll manipulate you with my speech so that you will land in a place that I want you to land, or so that I can get money out of, the, out of you, the money that I think I am entitled to. This is why flattering speech and greed are tied together in this verse. Remember, Thessalonica is a city of influence and affluence. There are people here who are wealthy. 
and they've seen people from, from religions and cults come into town, use flattering speech, take everything they can get out of the listener, and then skip town. Self-glory, self-centered leadership. And Paul's reminding them, I didn't use flattery to squeeze money out of you. My motive in sharing you with you the gospel is not self-centered. It was God-centered. John Calvin wrote, Where greed and ambition hold away, innumerable corruptions follow, and the whole man turns to vanity. These are the two sources from which stems the corruption of the whole of the ministry. I've seen pastors who I respect, who I follow, who I've learned from, allow greed and ambition to begin to rule. And it leads to the failure of a ministry or the, even worse yet, the failure of a marriage. It's devastating. It grieves the heart of God. It grieves the people of God. And when this occurs and when we hear about it, it should not lead to self-righteousness in us. It should rather lead us to a sober self-awareness that whether we are in ministry or not, none of us are above the temptation to begin to live for small g gods like self-glory and greed. I love how Paul writes, God is our witness. Saying we walked in the light of the Lord, we sought to be above reproach, we weren't sneaky or deceptive. Our God is who is all-knowing. He can take the stand, look at the accounts, dig through the private life, and you'll see, Paul is saying, his desire to live for God's kingdom and not Paul's own little kingdom. This is God-glorifying leadership. Verse 7, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. He'll talk about financial burden in verse 9. This burden that he is referring to is more of a, an authoritative burden. They didn't come in and wield their apostolic weight around or in a self-serving manner. They didn't come in and impose the weight of that in a domineering or brash or harsh way. Instead, they sought to be gentle, tender, considerate, gracious, charitable, so as leaders, they were not pounding their fists, saying, follow me or get out of the way. Follow me or get out of the way. No, they were gentle as a mother. It ultimately reflects the gentle and lowly nature of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Here we see the first picture of what God-glorifying leadership looks and acts like. As a nurse who nurtures her own children, or your translation might say a nursing mother, in that day, there was often a contract between the parents of the child and a nurse. And this other woman was in charge of feeding the child and taking care of the child. And so Paul is giving a picture of God-glorifying leadership like that of a mother. In the sense that, that you nurture and care for people and you don't do it because of a contract or because you've been hired to do it, because, but rather you do it because they are your own. Like a mother would look to her own children. There is a willing nature to a mother, isn't there? Mothers make these deliberate day-in and day-out choices, moment by moment oftentimes. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. I'm not going to live for myself, but I'm going to be gentle towards you. I'm not saying a mother is always gentle. I think we've all experienced that, whether it's kids. But for the most part, they pursue a gentleness. He continues with that picture of personal care. Verse 8, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. 
there is an earnest longing that Paul has to be with these people, to be near them. Earlier this year, our son moved out to Arizona for four and a half months, and it was the longest as parents that we'd been away from one of our kids or that they had been away from us. And we longed to see him in person. FaceTime didn't cut it. Zoom didn't cut it. We didn't use it. Google Meets didn't cut it. We've all experienced that in 2020. In person, we wanted to hug his neck. We wanted to put our arm around him. And some of you get that. You've had loved ones move away because of military or job or schools or those kind of things. But there was a longing to be near someone we loved. Such is the case for leaders who who reject self-centeredness and pursue Christ-likeness. Such leaders are committed. They're saying, I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm not going to be like a hired hand in, in, in John 10 that runs away because of trouble. I'm with you. Even if Paul had been forced to leave after just a few weeks for a few weeks with them, his affection for them only grows. And he writes, they gave not only the gospel message, but they gave of their own lives. Your translation may say, gave of their souls, which reveals the depth of what Paul is talking about here. Because his love for them, because they had become dear to him. This is why he's giving of himself. This is God glorifying leadership. Not at a distance, but among, giving of yourself, your soul. In one way, Paul and Silas and Timothy gave of themselves was through working hard so as not to become a burden. Verse 9, for you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preach God's gospel to you. We find, we find out in Philippians 4 that the Philippian church sent a gift to the Thessalonian church, to support Paul and his ministry there. And yet that financial support was not enough for Paul to quit his day job. And so Paul and others, in addition to receiving gifts like that, work hard. They find second jobs so as not to be a financial burden to this young church. And Paul worked long hours, laboring and doing work that results in fatigue. Paul went to bed tired at night because he'd worked hard not only in proclaiming the gospel, but, but providing for his own means so that he could live on mission. They were not going to be the, like the imposters or swindle, swindlers who came into town just to exploit the wealthy for selfish gain and then skip town. No, they rejected that mentality of, no, I'm entitled to this. Instead, they said, no, we're going to work hard. We're going to work hard so that we would not be a burden to the church. This is God glorifying leadership. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. You remember this, Thessalonians. What you saw in public was what you saw in private. And because we shared of our souls, our lives with you, you're with us in private, which lined up with what you saw in public. They matched up. And again, Paul points to, hey, even if the Lord takes the witness stand, this will hold true. No matter what people are saying about me, I'm seeking to please God. And in his identity, that Paul's received by grace alone. And in that identity, he will stand fast and remain. Paul and others weren't content with ongoing hypocrisy in their life. 
This is God glorifying leadership. Verse 11 and 12, as you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So verse 7 was a picture of a mother. Here is a picture of, a, of leadership being that, like a father. Encouraged, comforted, implored. The idea here is to urge a person to follow a certain mode of conduct. To live in a way that doesn't conform to the patterns of this world, but rather conforms to the word of God. That leads to life. Implored is the strongest word there. Go this way. Don't go that way. Don't lean on your own understanding. Lean instead on the Lord's wisdom and his understanding. Don't follow your selfish tendencies. Instead, put that off, put that to death, and follow the Lord. Put on the new creation that you are in Christ and walk toward freedom. Walk toward delight. Pictures of a mother and father. I love, I love the balance of that when it comes to leadership. Gentle, nurturing, caring, tender, and at the same time exhorting, imploring, pleading. Outside of marriage, I think parenting has taught me the most about how to practice and live out self-sacrificing love. I'm 21 years into school. I'm still learning. And man, I did not always get that right. I don't always get that right. My kids would tell you that. I don't always get it right as a husband or as a pastor or in other areas of leadership. And you don't either. I love you to tell you no, but you don't either. And yet, when the gospel is central to our lives, when the gospel is not just get out of hell free card or entrance into heaven, when the gospel is central, that truth changes us on a daily basis. We are reminded of grace. Grace that transforms, grace that sanctifies, grace that motivates us to continue to pursue Christ-likeness. Grace that says new mercies are new every morning. God-glorifying leadership, this is our pursuit by the grace of God, the power of His Spirit. This is our pursuit, not just in the church, but in all realms of life. Leaders who are daily choosing, I'm going to live and lead in a way that points to my God. Points toward His kingdom and His glory. Brother and sister in the Lord, you're a member of a new kingdom. A new eternal heavenly kingdom. Your citizenship in heaven is what is primary. And then shapes and forms and colors our citizenship here on this earth. May we live and lead in a way that points to the ruler and king of our hearts. And that is not us. We kneel before him. We bow before his greatness. We come under his loving care and authority. We are his sheep. And he is our good shepherd, our chief shepherd, who's worthy of our trust, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our affection, worthy of our lives. Being lived 24-7. 365 as worship unto him. The worship team could come back up. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful personally for how this particular passage of scripture has been sitting on my heart and motivating me and exposing areas that you're calling me to repent in and areas that you're calling me to Trust you in and 
I'm thankful that your word is living and active. We confess that we're all tempted to make this life about us, to make our leadership about us. We confess that we're all tempted to be leaders who are prone to seek after this glory of self rather than your glory and your name. Thank you that by grace alone you've called us out of darkness and into light. You've brought the good news to us and by its power we are saved and we are changed and we continue to be changed. Enable us to to keep the gospel as central to our leadership. And may that gospel and its truth and grace form us into God-glorifying leaders. Brothers and sisters in Christ who speak and live in a way and with a goal to please you and you alone. Leaders who reject greed and flattering speech and harsh and brash attitudes. Instead, may you embolden the people of God to be those who work hard, who are gentle and nurturing like a mother, and who encourage and implore like a father. Be glorified by the leaders who call this church home. Raise up future leaders of all generations who will live for your glory and your name alone. May you do it in the family and in the church and in the community and in business and in schools and in government. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.